encourage you to open your Bibles, if you can, to Joshua uh, chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible, a couple of uh, good-looking men are going to make their way to the back. You just put your hand up, and they'll make sure that they get you a copy of that so that you can follow along with us this morning in our study and meditation on God's Word. We are picking up today on our journey through the book of Joshua And for as far as we have come and as far as we have gone in the last several weeks, uh, it's hard to believe, but we are only technically at the halfway point of this book. Uh, If you were to look at Joshua in terms of its major divisions, if you were to look at the, the picture on the screen here, you would see that there's four major movements in the book of Joshua. Uh, You see in chapters 1 through 4, the people finally entering into the promised land that God had given to them. Uh, Our focus of the last several weeks has been there in chapters 5 through 12, looking at that taking of the land, the conquering of the land that God has given to them. And now we enter into that third movement in 13 to 21, uh, where we talk about the dividing of the land. Uh, People actually settling into the land that the Lord has promised them before the final three chapters that we'll look at in several weeks from now, where we see the promises and the charge, really, to keep the land that God has now given to them. Uh, We have covered, as I mentioned, a lot of ground, and we still have a lot of ground still to cover And in many ways, this is uncharted territory for a lot of Christians at this point. Um, It was a pastoral friend of mine who said something along the lines of this, this is where many Bible reading plans in a year go to die. And if they didn't get you in Leviticus and the the laws there or uh, the census in the book of Numbers, then this is certainly the place where the Bible reading plans might go to die for sure. But most people are certainly good with chapters 1 through 11, all the action, all the excitement that's taken place, but then our eyes begin to glaze over as we start to look at the chapters before us today. And while I fully acknowledge the, the tedium of these chapters I want to fight back against the temptation that most people have, which is to just kind of skip ahead. If we are a church that believes in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which I certainly believe that we are, a passage that says that all of Scripture is profitable for our instruction, for our correction, for our training in righteousness so that we may be fully equipped, then we truly believe that God does not waste words. And so I want to better seek to understand that as we dive into our section here this morning. So with that in mind, uh, we are going to read this morning. As you notice up on the screen, we are covering nine chapters. And guess what? I'm not going to read nine chapters this morning. Uh, In fact, I'm not even probably going to read nine verses. But we are going to read eight verses, uh, starting both at the beginning and the end of this section. So if you would, please stand. And we're actually going to read this morning, first starting in Joshua chapter 14. I'm going to read the first five verses there, and then we're going to go over to chapter 21 and read the final three verses of chapter 21. So Joshua 14, starting there in verse 1. 
These are the inheritances that the Lord, uh, that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord had commanded by the hand of Moses for the nine and one-half tribes. For Moses had given an inheritance to the two and one-half tribes beyond the Jordan. But to the Levites he gave no inheritance among them. For the people of Joseph were two tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. And no portion was given to the Levites in the land, but only cities to dwell in, their pasture lands for their livestock and their substances. The people of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. They allotted the land. Jumping over to chapter 21, verse 43. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. And they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of their enemies had withstood them. For the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. With that, you may be seated, and we're going to pray now and ask for God's blessing as we seek to unpack this before us today. And Father, now we do indeed ask for your kindness on us as we seek to better understand your word. This is a marvelous section of Joshua, and as we mentioned before, it's one that many of us uh, tend to skim past, to overlook, and I pray that, Lord, you would help us to see it with fresh eyes this morning, uh, to not be focused on uh, the tedious nature, but to, Lord, see the gracious provision that you uh, so abundantly show in your faithfulness. So we pray for open hearts now, open ears Uh, to better be able to see and behold your truth today. So we ask this now according to your great name. Amen. Well, there is a favorite day in uh, the Genusi household that happens a couple of times throughout the year. Uh, It is a day that we like to call refrigerator clean-out day. Uh, It is a day in which expired foods do not immediately get discarded into the trash can, uh, but rather they become fair game for the children to play chef and come up with their own delectable culinary masterpiece. Imaginations go wild and the end result is a mess of all kinds of wonderful culinary concoctions. Everything from dressings to condiments, from sauces to beverages, You name it, all is fair game on those days. Now, important disclaimer, no food is actually consumed in this process, in case you were wondering. It's all for the sake of imagination and the fun that comes with the clean-out process. But the reason that we are able to do this is because food has an expiration date. Uh, From the moment that it is made and it is put in a can, put in a jar, put on the shelves, you name it, the clock starts ticking. Uh, There is a time when that food is no longer good, it is no longer consumable, or at least it shouldn't be. The time runs out over time. And I wonder if the Israelites ever felt that way about the promises of God. 
if you think about it, by the time the Israelites are getting to the promised land, it had been over 400 years, 400 years since God had initially made the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12 that he would have descendants who would have a land for them to inherit. You have to be wondering, and I'm sure that they had to wonder at times, is God still going to be true to that promise? Is it going to reach a point when it will expire? And I think this new section of Joshua that we're entering into this morning is a clear example to us that the promises of God do not expire. Why? Because it all has to do with one key character trait of God that we've already alluded to this morning, his faithfulness. God's faithfulness is great. In fact, this morning we're going to see that God displays his faithfulness through his gracious provision. That God displays that faithfulness in a very important key way in this section, primarily through his provision. Today we're going to begin a three-part series that is going to explore the faithfulness of God in chapters 13 to 21. We're not going to work through this necessarily sequentially the way that we have up to this point, but we're going to look at this whole section through three different lenses over the next three weeks. This week, the focus is going to be on God's faithfulness to provide, primarily focusing on the land. And if you've already looked ahead to these chapters, you've seen that there is plenty of land. Lots and lots and lots of land. And this can certainly feel like an abrupt shift to our study of Joshua. After all, it's, it, it is kind of difficult to go from battles and war stories to land surveys and geography. Right? That's a pretty abrupt shift in this book. But I think we do ourselves a disservice if we look at these chapters exclusively through the lens of the land, though that is important. Which is why I want you to see the faithful character of our God who is gracious to provide for his people. So let's do that together. Let's look at this faithfulness of God through three main provisions in this section. Three main provisions. I want to begin in uh, chapters 13 to 19 with looking at that very focus of God's gracious provision of the land. God's gracious provision of the land. That is certainly uh, a primary emphasis here in this section, this dividing and distributing their long-promised inheritance of the land. You see Joshua, in many ways, taking on the role of a, a early-day Oprah. You get a land, you get a land, you get a land, right? Everybody gets some land. Everyone is going to get their share of the promised land. And for the sake of time, we cannot go into all the detail of the land in these chapters, though I know you're disappointed about that and I'm certainly not going to read through all the names of the boundaries in the cities though I'm sure you would be highly entertained to see me do that as well instead I want to give you the big picture overview of the land given to the promised tribes of Israel and I think in order to do so we must do a little bit of explaining on the backstory behind these tribes remember these tribes uh, their origins go back to the 12 sons of Jacob in the book of Genesis, right? So these 12 sons that 
Jacob had. Jacob, again, his name later is changed to the name Israel, right? And so these here are the, the 12 listed sons in order of their birth uh, that, were, that came from Israel. Now, over time, the nature of the tribes became recognized through the land that was given to them. And so if we move over to the next slide here, you're going to see how uh, Levi and Joseph kind of get scratched out, not because they are removed, but because God had different purposes for them. In the case of Levi, we're going to learn that he has a different plan for them as the priestly tribe, where they don't have a specific land, but they are giving something much different. And when it comes to Joseph, Joseph becomes recognized not through his own tribe name, but through his sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so in total, you still have 12 tribes that are given a portion of the land. And this final slide I want to show you here shows how every single one of those tribes is given their allotted portion. You certainly don't have to write this all down here, but it goes to show the faithful character of God to give these people their land throughout this section of Joshua. Now, let's Think about this for just a moment as you look at everything that's happening here, because this is an order of how these tribes were given their land. Let's focus on those first three there, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Remember that this plan for these tribes began all the way back in the book of Numbers, in Numbers 32. We talked about this in the opening chapter of Joshua. These two and a half tribes, back in Numbers, when they were... Uh, in the wilderness, when they were waiting to enter into the promised land because of their disobedience, these tribes, because of their livestock, uh, saw that the land actually to the east of the Jordan River was pretty good for them. And they made a request to Moses saying, rather than having land inside the boundaries of the promised land, they wanted to settle to the east. Well, Moses was initially concerned by this because his thought was that they were trying to get out of having to do the hard work of taking the land, not to mention that they might become a stumbling block for the Israelites the second time they need to go into land, saying, maybe we don't need to go into it. And eventually, he makes these people promise to enter with the other tribes to help them subdue the promised land before returning to this spot east of the promised land that he will indeed grant them. And if you remember in chapter 1, we saw that they remain true to their commitment. They have indeed, for these last several years, gone with their brother, uh, brothers into the promised land to help fight to do the hard work of inheriting the land and now they are promised that very land to the east that they had wanted years before. Chapter 13 reminds us of this and, dis and distinguishes a clear allotment of that land to the east for these tribes. That then transitions us to the tribe of Judah in chapters 14 and 15, which focuses on the land given to them, most likely due to Judah's significance in Israel's history, while also highlighting the faithful member of the tribe of Judah, a guy by the name of Caleb. And we're going to focus more on Caleb next week. But we see through Caleb's faithfulness and the role of Judah and their significance, they are given the next portion. They are really given the first portion of land within the new promised land. 
Chapter 16 turns attention to the remainder of Joseph's descendants, that other half-tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Ephraim. They are allotted a particular portion. Now, that leaves seven tribes remaining in chapters 18 and 19. And we're going to see in a few weeks that there's some apprehension going on. These tribes, for some reason, are dragging their feet to actually take full possession of the land. Joshua has to give them a little kick in the pants to say, what's wrong with you? Come on, like, move along here. But eventually what he does is he sends them on a survey mission, these remaining seven tribes, to go in, look at the land, map it out, divide it up, and then come back with a report, and then we are going to cast lots to see who gets which spot of land. That determining by lot would have been with these, uh, most likely with these stones of the high priest, this Urim and Thummim, that uh, would have been comparable in many ways to our thinking of how you flip a coin or you draw straws, right? It was a way that looked on the surface like chance of who would get the specific land. By the time all is said and done, all 12 tribes receive a portion of their promised inheritance. Uh, the map on the screen here shows uh, a very simple overview of where these tribes eventually had their land settled. But all in all, 12 tribes had been promised land and all 12 tribes receive it. The question now is, are you entertained yet? I mean, is this not riveting stuff? Is this not why you come to church every single Sunday for stuff like this? But here's the deal that we need to understand. To the original audience, to the Israelites who are reading back through the book of Joshua in his day, this would have been the most exciting part of the book. The war stories and stuff, they probably didn't really care about too much although it was recounting God's faithfulness there for sure. But what they cared about was, this is, this is the promises of God coming true 400 years in the making. I mean, this is something that began all the way back in Genesis 12. Look how far we are into the Bible at this point. Uh, this is like a, a will reading, but even better, right? The, what you get, the, what has been apportioned to you, what has been saved up for you all these years. God demonstrates his faithfulness to his people by giving them, all of them, the very land that he had promised more than 400 years earlier. Which leads us to our second display of God's faithfulness in this section, which is God's provision of justice. God's provision of justice Look with me at chapter 20 for a moment. We're introduced in this chapter to what Joshua calls cities of refuge. Cities of refuge. Well, what are these cities? Well, read with me here the opening six verses of chapter 20. Then the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. That the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. He shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain there with them. 
And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is the high priest at that time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home to the town from which he fled. As you read this here, you're kind of like, What's happening? What's going on here? This is God's way of keeping law and order, especially in cases of murder or manslaughter. If you were responsible for the accidental death of a, another villager, you could flee to this town for refuge. It was a, a guarantee of the sanctity of life, both for the person who was killed as well as the person who was responsible Uh, You think about it, if this was happening and there were no other witnesses, there would be a temptation on the part of the family of the victim to want to seek retribution, to seek revenge, uh, and take matters into their own hands. Uh, You ask yourself, well, can you give me an example of what this might look like? Well, absolutely I can, because Deuteronomy 19.5 gives one specific example of this. And I love it. It's the example of if two men go into the forest and they go and they are going to chop down some trees and chop up some wood and uh, just so happens that one guy draws back his axe and the axe head flies off and hits the other guy and it kills him, uh, then he would have a place to flee to. Now, if you're anything like me, you're asking yourself, how often was that happening in Israel, right? If somebody's asking to go chop wood with them in the forest, I'm a little... I'm a little skeptical about that, right? But you get the idea here, right? So if there's some type of accidental death that is caused uh, and there's no other witnesses, this is, a, this is a challenging position for the person. And so this is a protection for them to be able to flee to these cities of refuge uh, so that they could plead their case to the leaders at the city gate. Uh, These individuals would be given a fair hearing. They would be provided lodging and would be kept safe in the case that the avenger of blood would seek them out. And the question is, what comes next then for that person? Well, did you see what he said in verse 6? He shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is the high priest at the time. You see, in many ways, the city was both a refuge and a to some degree, a prison of sorts. Uh, the person could not just leave and go home, even if they were innocent, or they were fair game if they chose to leave. Uh, but the blood of the victim was still on their hands. And it's interesting to note here that it says that only at the death of the high priest would they be released to be able to go home. Now, that doesn't just happen every day. High priests are not just dying every day. Uh, there would be significant time involved with that. And there's no reason necessarily given why the, uh, the release of the individual is tied with the uh, death of the high priest. But it is interesting because I think there is some hint of atonement in this. That back in this culture, there were no sacrifices that could be offered for the sake of a murderer or someone guilty of manslaughter. The high priest was an individual who represented the the sacrificial system in Israel. And it's significant that the release of the manslayer could only be granted in the case when the high priest himself died. 
at which point the manslayer could return to his home and to his previous way of life. We see here God in his both wisdom and his mercy providing an opportunity for justice to play out. And he designates here six cities spread across the land, three on each side of the Jordan River, for this very purpose, so that men and women in Israel had equal access to find this justice. God provides this so graciously for his people here. But finally, I want to give attention to God's provision of himself. And this is something that if we're not careful, if we read too quick, we overlook We see God's provision of himself. Uh, Up to this point in Joshua, there is still one final group that has not received their inheritance in some way. It's at this point that we see the final display of God's faithfulness through the provision that he gives to the Levites. And this was actually alluded to already back in chapter 13, verses 14 and 33. In chapter 13, verse 14, to the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. Verse 33, it says, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. You see, though the, Isra- uh, though the Levites were not given a section of the land like the other tribes, they were given a special privilege that was not granted to all the other tribes. They had rights to the, to the tithes and the choicest offerings that the Israelites would give in their worship to Yahweh. Uh, The sweetness of that is found there in chapter 13, verse 33, where it says that Yahweh, the God of Israel, would be their inheritance. That somehow God himself was their portion. Still, there were numerous people like the, they were numerous people like the other tribes, and they needed a place to live and to dwell with their families and even their livestock. And so we see in chapter 21, Verse 1, the heads of the fathers of the houses of the Levites came to Eleazar the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun to the heads of the fathers of the houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pastures for their livestock. So by the command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. As such, the rest of the chapter details the 48 cities throughout the promised land that are given for the Levites, for their families, for their pasture lands, for them to dwell in for the years to come. Consider the difference, these two chapters between chapter 20 and the cities of refuge and chapter 21, the cities for the Levites. You know, there was only six cities of refuge, but there were 48 cities for the Levites. You know, God certainly cares about their justice, but God cares even more importantly for their worship. Because here we see God giving the Israelites as a whole, as a people throughout the land, abundant access to their priests, 
who helped aid the people in their worship of God. After all, the Levites were responsible for collecting their offerings, carrying out their sacrifices, and even helped proclaim God's word, helped them understand the Torah, God's law, to his people. The fact that there are 48 cities spread throughout the land shows that God wanted the people to have abundant access to himself. Through this all, we see God's gracious provision of himself, both for the Levites and for the tribes in the promised land. For the Levites, it was seen in their privilege to facilitate the worship of Yahweh in the land, while the rest of the tribes, it was seen in their abundant access that they were given to worship Yahweh. God is abundantly faithful to give these people access to himself. Because he is the most important part of this inheritance, as I want us to see here this morning. Such is his faithfulness on display. So what does this mean for us as God's people as we look at God's provision? Look at four points here for us to consider. The first one is this. There are no wasted words with God. There are no wasted words with God. We've mentioned that before in the fact that God uses all this spans of these chapters here to talk about this land, all the details, all these cities, all these boundaries. God doesn't waste any of those words. But I think that's most beautifully summarized in the section that we read at the beginning in verses 43 to 45 of chapter 21, where it says, The Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. Look at verse 45. Not one word. You hear that? Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. The literal translation there in the Hebrew is that there were no failing words. Not a single word failed. It's a reminder of a point that we've come back to time and time throughout this series that God keeps his word, God remains true to his promises. His promises remain true. They do not expire like food in a fridge or cans in a cabinet. As such, his people can bank on them. And in fact, many of them do bank on that in this section. Time did not permit us to go into great detail today, but there are three major examples of this throughout chapters 13 to 21. We're going to look at one of them next week in Caleb in chapter 14 where he comes to Joshua and reminds him of the promise that God made to him for a specific section of land because of his faithfulness that he had demonstrated many years earlier. We see in chapter 17 an interesting story that has some background to it that you should look at later. But here we are introduced in chapter 17 verses 3 to 6 of five women Five daughters of a man by the name of Zelophead. That's a great name, by the way, right? If you're looking for new names for your kids, Zelophead, put that towards the top, right? But Zelophead, in the book of Numbers, passes away before any of his daughters are married, before there's any male descendants who can carry on the family name or have any land themselves. And they petition Moses that they might have an apportion and an allotment of the land when they enter years later. And you know what God does? He grants them that request. It's God's justice again for these women and his protection of them. 
And they come in chapter 17, verses 3 through 6, to remind Joshua of that promise that God had made. And you know what God says? I will remain true to that. I will carry it out just like I promised decades earlier. And we see a final display of that in chapter 21. We just read of it with the Levites, right? The Levites come and they boldly remind them of the promises that had been made to them as the priests, as those who will carry out the priestly ministry in Israel that they have in a portion as well. In all three of those cases, we see these people coming before the Lord via Joshua, making bold requests that relate to God's promises. And what we see there is that God does not despise that. What encouragement this is for us as God's people, this side of the cross. Not only that we can trust God's promises, that we, but that we can come before the throne of grace with boldness before our heavenly Joshua, our Jesus, right, who is our high priest. As such, we can pour out our hearts to God and make bold requests that correspond to his word that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. Right? That is what God has promised to us as his people, that we can come boldly because of these things. So, dear believers, stand firm today on the promises of God. You have a spiritual inheritance laid up for you as a child in God's family. And as such, you can rest peacefully knowing that this inheritance is secure through Christ Jesus. But secondly, I want you to see this morning that God intentionally places his people where he wants them to be. God intentionally places his people where he wants them to be. When we get to the allotment for the final seven tribes in chapter 18, we see it being done, as I mentioned before, by, by Lot, which Lot seems like it would be seemingly by chance, right? This drawing of straws or flipping of a coin. Somehow these, these rocks, these stones that the high priest had would determine where these people were going to live. But it would be a mistake for us to see that process as something that was random. And here's why. Look at chapter 18, verse 6. You shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. Look at verse 8. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write up the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. Verse 10. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord, and there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel. Do you see the common thread in all three of those verses? These lots were cast before the Lord, before the Lord's presence. To say that they were cast before the Lord is to say that the Lord personally was involved in this allotment of land. The Lord placed these tribes where he wanted them to be. I believe this is important for us today to consider as followers of God. Because if we believe in the sovereignty of God, which I would hope that we do, then we know that God does not make mistakes, particularly in where he has placed us in life. 
It's certainly seen, I think, most easy when life is good, but also when we find ourselves in hard situations. When we find ourselves in the middle of a a job and a position at work that's really hard. When we're dealing with the struggles of singleness or even a marriage that is really challenging and really hard. Perhaps a child who is rebelling and uh, just trying to figure out how to navigate life. Perhaps seen most clearly when a loved one or even yourself is in a season of significant suffering. Whether that be physical, spiritual, emotional, whatever it may be. Truth is, church, God has placed you where he wants you to be. We believe in the sovereignty of God. We know that God works all things together for good. And he is using that for your good where he has placed you right now. There is not a gap in his care. So do not push back against that, but embrace that and see God's goodness and what he is trying to teach you and how he is trying to refine you even in those situations. Thirdly, this morning we see that God cares about justice for his people. We currently live in a world that likes to talk a lot about justice. There's many perspectives. If you turn on the news, you turn on TV, you listen to any podcast, you're going to hear all kinds of opinions of what justice looks like, what justice means. And again, we certainly as God's people believe in justice. We, we long for the day of perfect justice. But in chapter 20, we see God in the beautiful attribute of his justice on uh, on display. He is fair. He is righteous. He is merciful. He values the sanctity of human life, both for the manslayer and for the victim involved in the crime. It reminds us that the God we serve is a God of justice, that there is no guilty who goes free or no innocent who will be punished, and that is a good thing. We want a God who is just. That also reminds us that if God is just, that's not naturally good news for humanity, is it? It reminds us that none of us are naturally worthy of grace because God's justice should punish each and every one of us. The only way that God can be just and forgiving is through punishing another. And in punishing another who is specifically innocent in the case of Christ Jesus, right? That's why Paul's able to write in Romans 8, 1, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The reason that any of us can have no condemnation upon us, even though we rightfully deserve God's wrath, is because Jesus Christ has taken that for you. God being both the just and the justifier. And this also reminds us this morning that it points forward to the day of perfect justice, the day when God will make this world right, that the imperfect, that imperfect justice that we see in our world today, day after day after day, will be done away with it. And I don't know about you, but I really long for that day. And because we know God is true to his promises, we can live with fullness of hope. And though we strive for what we believe is right and true to God today, we ultimately don't put our hope that justice will be accomplished in this life. We put our hope in the fact that Jesus Christ one day will bring forth perfect justice into the land. 
and into the new heavens and the new earth that he has promised to us. And finally, this morning, I want you to see, most importantly, perhaps, that the greatest gift for us as God's people is none other than God himself. Like the Levites, we must see the greatest gift of our inheritance is God. The greatest inheritance you have laid up for you is not just that you have a heavenly home that the Lord has prepared for you, though that's an amazing privilege. The greatest inheritance for you is not the spiritual rewards that the Lord has promised to you one day in heaven, though we all long for that, don't we? The greatest inheritance that you have laid up for you is not the new redeemed body that won't experience any pain, any suffering, anything of the effects of this world, though that will be certainly awesome, and we all long for that, right? But all of those things pale in comparison to the inheritance of God himself. He is your greatest inheritance. You see, we must never focus so much on the gifts that we overlook the giver. As Dale Ralph Davis says, healthy, grateful faith sees beyond the inheritance to the one who granted it and is careful to never prize Yahweh's gifts more than Yahweh himself. It is to see as Asaph in Psalm 73 and Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 that the Lord is my inheritance. He is my portion forever. And so I ask you, do you see God in this way today? Is God the portion that you truly believe that you could never go without? Let me ask you, more bluntly, when you think of eternity and you think of your future in heaven, is God even there? You see, the hope for all of us as God's people is that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. That we would cherish God's good gifts, but only so far as we cherish the gift of God himself. As we learned a few weeks ago from Pastor Josh in Luke 10, Mary chose the good portion, which was the treasure of Christ himself, that would never be taken away from her. So as we look back at God's faithfulness to Israel, it is impossible to overlook the ways in which God has been so faithful to us. Am I right? We serve a gracious God who has offered us a wonderful portion, an inheritance that will not be taken away because of his faithfulness to us. May all of us today rest in the gracious portion of our faithful God. Let's pray. And Father, now as we close, we do just want to be mindful of your faithfulness to see it for what it is. Lord, above all, we pray that you would be our portion forever. Mm -hmm that we would taste and see your goodness. That, Lord, as much as we long for the, the gifts of our spiritual inheritance, the, the, the world that we will one day live in, the redeemed bodies that you have promised to us, the riches of our uh, spiritual rewards, Lord, all these things are great, but help us never to treasure them and hold on to them greater than our love and our treasure that we have first and foremost in you. Help us to taste and see that you are good and to long, Lord, more for that day when we will be with you and experience the fullness of that together. But until that day, Lord, 
Help us as your people, in light of your faithfulness, strive to be faithful to you, for you are worthy and you are glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.